Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on science and technology. I'm Hal Hodson, the Economist's technology correspondent, and coming up on this week's show, how the amphibious life of the Bajo people has pushed forward the understanding of human evolution. And it seems that the genetic variant that we see in the Bajo causes thyroid hormone levels to be higher, which in turn causes an increase in spleen size. And the second Gaia data release, and why scientists are so excited about it. The way the data is being handled is quite unusual. The Gaia team are going to make it all public right from the start. So anyone who wants to can go and download this stuff now and start looking. But first, methane levels have been shooting up since 2007. Today, our air contains two and a half times as much methane as it did before the Industrial Revolution. Joining me in the studio to look at this increasing problem and to discuss what's being done about it is The Economist's environment correspondent, Jan Petrowski. Hello, Jan. Hi. So put this problem into context for us. Um, How bad is the methane problem compared to the sort of overall CO2 problem? So the bulk of carbon emissions, what we call carbon emissions, actually come from carbon dioxide. Very often we express the total greenhouse gas emissions in terms of carbon dioxide equivalent, which suggests that carbon dioxide is indeed the principal culprit when it comes to global warming. However, methane is the second largest. So perhaps a sixth of all warming is attributable to methane. So it's not insignificant. Right. And it's also growing faster than the emissions of carbon dioxide. The amount of methane that we're pumping into the atmosphere is growing faster than the amount of CO2. The amount of methane is growing very fast. The concentrations of methane are growing incredibly fast, especially in the past decade. Um, After a lull from the late 1990s to about 2007, where methane concentrations were flat, they began uh, rising quite rapidly starting in 2007 and, in, in fact, accelerated in about 2014. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Why is that? Well, this is the big mystery. So the previous uptick, which began in the 1980s, was attributed to creaking Soviet gas infrastructure. So a lot of methane was leaking out of the natural gas pipelines, methane being the principal component of of natural gas. And then the leveling off of, of the concentrations was actually attributed to the fixing up of those pipelines. Now, researchers knew that because they looked at the isotopic composition of the methane. So uh, methane is a molecule which is composed of a carbon atom surrounded by four hydrogen atoms. That's always the case. However, the carbon atom comes in different varieties. Uh, Some of them have uh, six protons and six neutrons in the nucleus. Others have more neutrons. And by looking at those heavier isotopes and the proportion of those heavier isotopes in any given sample, scientists can tell the provenance of the methane. And there are two main sources, the geological sources, so natural gas mostly. Sometimes some of it leaks out of untapped reservoirs, but the bulk actually comes from leaky pipelines and from the production and transport of natural gas. 
and that's about a fifth of all uh, methane emitted into the atmosphere. And then much of the rest comes from biological sources. It's the result of the metabolism of certain microorganisms which live in the soil. And these biological sources are, contain less of this heavier isotope of carbon. So by looking at the isotopic composition, you can tell whether the rise has been coming from more from geological sources or more from biological sources. And the latest rise appears to have been coming from the biological sources rather than geological sources. So th this methane that's additional is biological. That means it's coming from sort of swamplands or maybe from the stomachs of animals. This is the big question. So sort of wh where is it coming from? If the rise is not being driven by fossil fuel-related methane emissions, it looks to be driven by, by biological emissions. Unfortunately, the isotopic composition of methane from wetlands and methane from cattle burps is very difficult to distinguish. They're all biological in provenance and therefore both on the light side. So there, you, you have to have other ways of trying to work out which of these two sources is the predominant one. Does that mean you have to start measuring closer to the actual source? Exactly. And unfortunately, there is precious little resources going into this, these sort of measurements, especially in the tropics. Now, what about, I mean, one of the first things I thought when I was reading your story is, oh, what about the big methane bomb in the Arctic? That's probably something our listeners will know about. Is that in play here? Or are we worried about that? So that would be a biological source because this is methane locked up in the soil in the Arctic. But fortunately, it seems that the methane in the Arctic is not rising any faster than methane in the rest of the world. So this would suggest that the, the Arctic has not begun to thaw and release methane, which could in turn lead to this feedback loop that many people are afraid of. So, I mean, the fact that we don't see an increase in methane from the Arctic is not really a reassurance that this will not happen. No, no, of course not. It's reassuring only in the sense that it isn't happening yet. Right. It's not happening right now. OK, great. Good. <laughs> what can we do about this? A lot of that depends on what the answer to the methane mystery is. If it turns out that it is, in fact, cattle, then at least in principle, you could have less cattle. I mean, in practice, that could be difficult, but you know, theoretically, it's doable. There are sort of some other hypotheses of whether where the optic might be coming from. One is that the optic is, in fact, coming from fossil fuels, but that is being masked by a precipitous fall in emissions from the burning of biomass which has a, an isotopic signature which is even heavier than fossil fuels. So a very steep decline in very heavy fire-related isotopes might actually be masking a, a slight uptick in fossil-related isotopes. So, I mean, it clearly depends upon what the source of this extra methane is, but in the grand scheme of things, is it going to be easier to try and cut back on CO2 or methane? What should we focus on? So it really isn't an either or between methane and, and carbon dioxide. Both need to be cut and both need to be cut pretty drastically if there is any hope of reaching the ambitious goal set out in the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015 of limiting warming to well below two degrees relative to pre-industrial times. Carbon dioxide has to be cut and you can't put that off. So you can't, for instance, use the excuse of easier cuts to methane emissions at the expense of cuts to carbon dioxide emissions because that would just mean that carbon dioxide keeps accumulating in the air and that will almost certainly mean that this Paris target will never be met. On the other hand, you cannot ignore methane emissions just because it's such a potent greenhouse gas and because its levels have been rising quite disturbingly. Two problems with many and unfortunately difficult solutions. Jan Petrowski, thank you very much for coming on Babbage. Thank you.
Next up, holding your breath underwater for five minutes would seem impossible to most of us, but for the Bajo in Indonesia, it's a normal part of life. This group of people from the Malay archipelago spend 60% of their working day underwater and have done so for about a thousand years. So what can a study of their particular skills and lifestyle tell us about human evolution? I'm joined on the phone by Melissa Elardo of the University of Copenhagen. Melissa has been studying the Bajo and reported her findings in the journal Cell recently. Hi, Melissa. Hi. So, Melissa, can you describe the Bajo for us? What is daily life like for them? So traditionally, they're spending their whole day, about an eight-hour working day, diving. And this is done from 30 seconds to several minutes at a time. And their recovery time is so short that they're spending about 60% of their day underwater. So why did you choose the Bajo to study for this sort of, you know, looking for these signs of human evolution over shorter time scales? Well, it really seemed like the perfect opportunity to study natural selection because you have a population that's engaging every day in this activity that's actually extremely dangerous. So a lot of even very experienced freedivers will um, lose consciousness during ascent and drown. So it becomes very dangerous if you're doing it all the time. Right. But you did find that there are some selective traits that have, I presume, helped some divers stay alive over the course of the last thousand years. Some lineages of divers stay alive. Yeah, that's absolutely what we think we found. How does that work? What's the physiology of it? So there's something called the human dive response. And the way this works is that when you hold your breath and immerse yourself in water, it triggers this response. And first, your heart rate slows down. Then you have constriction of the blood vessels in your extremities. And you also have contraction of the spleen. And what this is doing is your spleen is holding oxygenated red blood cells. And so as it contracts, it pushes them into your system and gives you this extra oxygen boost. And so that was actually the phenotype we chose to focus on in the Bajo. And what is the, are there sort of very clear genetic traces of these physiological changes or underpinnings rather? Yeah, there are. So we found something in the gene PDE10A, which seems to have been under selection in the Bajo. And what this gene does, or one of the things that it does, is to control thyroid hormone levels. And it seems that the genetic variant that we see in the Bajo causes thyroid hormone levels to be higher, which in turn causes an increase in spleen size. So when they have this larger spleen, they're getting even more of an oxygen boost that allows them to dive for even longer. Does the fact that these mutations have held and become part of the actual lineage mean that the Bajo are quite genetically isolated from outside populations? Yeah, so we're actually surprised to find that In terms of their genetic history, it seems that they haven't been that isolated. So they have mixed quite a bit with other populations, which just shows us that the selective pressure on this diving trait must be so strong in order to act on a population that isn't really that isolated. So you say that the Bajo had larger spleens, but did you check if everybody in the region has larger spleens too? How do we know it's got anything to do with diving? Yeah, so we did a few comparisons to really tease apart what was going on with the spleen size. One thing we did was to compare them to a neighboring group called the Salwan. And these are people who are living about 20 kilometers away, so very close by. Genetically, they're fairly similar, but in all other ways, seemingly they're completely distinct. They have a different language, a different lifestyle. They're not really interacting with the sea. And there we saw this huge difference in spleen size. So the Bajo had spleens that were much larger than the Salwan, about 50% larger. And this told us that there wasn't just something going on in the region that was causing an increase in spleen size. We also looked at Bajo divers compared to Bajo non-divers to make sure that the effect we were seeing 
wasn't just some kind of physiological reaction to repeated diving. And there we saw that Bajo divers and non-divers have about the same size spleen. Melissa, it's all completely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on to Babbage. It's been great talking to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on the amphibious evolution of the Bajo people or on rising methane levels in the atmosphere? Tell us in an email and send it our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not try a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com forward slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Finally. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Let me just start by saying that uh, around the world, there are lots of professional astronomers very excitedly waiting for Gaia Day to release too. Um, and everyone is sitting at the ready, waiting to get their hands on the data to start scientifically exploring this. That was Professor Anthony Brown from the Gaia Data Processing and Analysis Consortium, introducing the second data release from the Gaia Space Probe, which was made public today. I'm joined in the studio by Tim Cross, the Economist science correspondent, to discuss the importance of today's release. Hello, Tim. Hi, Hal. So what's so important about this data release and what are these scientists excited about? Well, the main thing about it is just the sheer scale of it. This is a satellite that's been up there since 2013 looking around the galaxy. And scientists know that we live in the galaxy and they know very, very roughly how big it is. So it's 100,000 light years across or maybe it's 180,000 light years across. But, you know, what's 80,000 light years between friends? There's 100 billion stars roughly, although sometimes there's maybe there's 200 billion. And then some scientists actually know perhaps there's 400 billion. So, you know, the galaxy is huge, but we don't actually understand it in detail all that well. We know the, the sort of broad strokes of how it looks and what it is, but our specific understanding is quite limited. And this basically is Guy's job. So it's looking at all these stars, as you said, 1.3 billion of them so far and more in the future. And it's mapping their position on the sky and how far away they are, what color they are, how bright they are. And really, for the first time, we're going to have pretty accurate atlas, if you like, of at least part of the galaxy. So all in all, this thing will map about 1% of the stars that exist in the Milky Way. And this is data that we've we've sort of never had before to this level of, of accuracy. Are there any particular galactic mysteries that it might help us with? Well, there are all kinds. So one of the things it'll do is just find, you know, sort of large numbers of things that we know are out there, but we only have small numbers of examples of at the moment. So white dwarfs, for instance, which is the eventual fate of our own sun. It's a sort of super dense ball of cooling matter that's what happens to a star about the size of our sun after it's, it's run out of fuel. We know what these things are. We know they exist. We know they're out there in the universe, but we only have detailed information for a few of them. And Gaia is going to give us, we think, about 26,000 of these things, up from a few dozen. So lots to find out and lots of data to go through. Uh, how long is it going to take us to actually start getting studies out about this stuff? Uh, well, there are some out already. And in fact, because people have, be, have known this is coming, there are research groups out there who've had the sort of skeletons of papers ready to go, just waiting to sort of drop some of the data from Gaia in to eat the conclusions a bit and say... We found a population of 26,000 white dwarfs and, and here's what we can learn from all their colours or whatever. But there's so many data points in this release. It's one of the biggest ever made in astronomy that the the way the data is being handled is quite unusual. So normally, if you've gone to the effort of building a satellite and flying it and all the rest, you hold on to your data jealously for a while, fillet it for all the good stuff, and then maybe, if you're feeling generous, make it public later. The Gaia team just partly because there's, there's just so much, are going to make it all public right from the start. So anyone who wants to, from people at K2 
Cambridge University or Harvard or whatever, right down to you and me in the studio, can go and download this stuff now and start looking. So we'll see probably a blizzard of papers in the next few days. And I would have thought this thing will be still providing fuel for papers for, for decades. Because I should say, you know, this is the second data release. There are, I think, at least three more planned, and they'll be, they will be bigger. So open to everybody? Well, I mean, literally everybody. So professors of astronomy right down to school children. I mean, the, the nice thing about astronomy, or the unusual thing about it, it's one of the few sciences where sort of amateurs, you know, people who do it for love rather than money, can still make a real contribution. And so I went to the press conference in London, and there were some children there from a London school who had been using data data, I think, gathered from the first data release from Gaia, which was a couple of years ago, to do some, you know, fairly advanced astronomical work on a, on a particular, I think it was a supernova, that no one had analysed before. So quite literally, anybody who wants to have a go can, can grab this stuff and get started. Children analysing supernovas. That's what we're living with here. Tim, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Hal. That's all for this edition of Babbage. In London, I'm Hal Hodson, and this is The Economist. 